Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues. And I have conversations with foreign policy thought leaders who discuss their life, career, and the big events that shape their worldview. Over the past several months, North Korea has engaged in a series of provocative nuclear and missile tests. It's conducted nuclear tests in January and then September of last year, along with several ballistic missile tests throughout 2016. And in 2017 alone, there have been no fewer than five missile launches, most recently on March 6, when North Korea launched four missiles which landed off the coast of Japan. Meanwhile, later in March, Secretary of State Tillerson traveled to the region in his first big foray into the vexing regional diplomacy that has so far failed to stop North Korea from advancing its nuclear weapons programs. And while visiting the region, Tillerson promised to end the Obama-era strategy of, quote, strategic patience, but he has not yet articulated what kinds of policies would take its place. On the line with me to discuss the North Korea nuclear issue is Kelsey Davenport, who is the Director for Nonproliferation Policy at the Arms Control Association. She discusses the strategic implications of the specific technologies that North Korea is testing, that is why Pyongyang is conducting these kinds of tests. She also describes the policy options on the table for the Trump administration as it tries to confront North Korea's nuclear ambitions. And I must say, this conversation was very helpful to me personally. I suspect you will learn a lot from it as well. If you want to learn more about the kind of historic context from which international efforts to confront North Korea's nuclear program emerged, you should listen to my conversation with Daryl Kimball, the president of the Armed Control Association. And you can access that conversation by becoming a premium subscriber to the podcast. And you can become a premium subscriber to the podcast and unlock bonus episodes and other rewards like complimentary access to my Dawn's Digest Global News Clip service by clicking on the support the show link on globaldispatchespodcast.com or on the link in the description field of this episode if you're listening on iTunes. And you should do so because you know there is no other podcast out there like Global Dispatches that brings you the kind of content I do week in, week out, covers the issues I do and the way I do. And I need your help to keep this thing going. We're still in our subscription drive. I want to make this a listener-supported, sustainable enterprise, and I can only do so with your support. So please do support the show, become a premium subscriber, unlock all kinds of goodies, and thank you. Just thank you. Thank you for supporting the show. Thank you for listening. And now here is my conversation with Kelsey Davenport. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. Well, 2016 and the beginning of 2017 certainly 
has indicated a flurry of activity in North Korea, both on its nuclear and its ballistic missile programs. And looking at the types of activities that North Korea has been engaged in, namely working on firing off ballistic missiles simultaneously, developing new types of missiles, including solid-fueled systems, and working on a submarine-launched ballistic missile, I think it's clear that North Korea is trying to diversify its delivery options for nuclear warheads. And what I take that to mean is that North Korea is serious about developing a nuclear deterrent and a range of options for actually delivering warheads. And these launches, these nuclear tests are not merely political statements, but actually part of an organized program that's designed to advance North Korea's capabilities and help it build up a strong deterrent. And and it's so, you know, North Korea obviously already has nuclear weapons, but recently it seems what they're testing, as you just said, are the delivery mechanisms for these weapons. Is that right? Exactly. In 2016 alone, North Korea conducted over two dozen missile tests. A lot of these missile tests were systems that we've seen in the past. Uh, North Korea's short and medium range ballistic missiles. You know, these missiles are systems that North Korea can rely on. They work reasonably well. And North Korea can likely fit a miniaturized nuclear device on the tips of these missiles. And they already but, have that. that that's, that's, that's a sort of a fait accompli at this point. It's likely that they already mm-hmm. have that. And, and those mm-hmm. medium, those, those smaller warheads are sufficient to you know, hit Seoul or, or could they you know, hit as far as Japan? So the short and medium range ballistic missiles would put all of South Korea and and most of Japan within range of a North Korean nuclear strike. And that, of course, would include U.S. bases and U.S. troops in the region as well. Um, But, you know, what North Korea has done in 2016 and the beginning of 2017 that's more interesting is its progress on different types of ballistic missile systems. So Pyongyang has this limited but established uh, missile systems, these short and medium range missiles. And now, you know, they're looking at other options. And there are a few tests that occurred that are, are really quite interesting when we're assessing, you know, what, North Korea's strategy is and what it's actually trying to develop. You know, the, the first thing I think that's important to note is that North Korea has been working on simultaneously launching missiles in September and then again just in March of 2017. North Korea conducted several launches where it fired, you know, three or four ballistic missiles at once. And this is very interesting because this could be a deliberate tactic that North Korea is trying to develop to overwhelm U.S. missile defenses that are going to be deployed in South Korea. Uh, The system is known as THAAD. It is an aerial defense system, and there are a limited number of ballistic missile interceptors uh, with THAAD. 
So by testing multiple missiles, North Korea could try and overwhelm the THAAD radar, or they could attempt to fire so many missiles that there wouldn't be enough interceptors uh, to try and block the ballistic missiles from actually reaching their targets in South Korea. So this type of simultaneous testing could be a very deliberate attempt for North Korea to try and strengthen its hand against deployed missile defenses in South Korea. So as and you in, said earlier, I mean, it's it's not just a, a political demonstration that there is actual tactical advantage that North Korea seeks to gain through these tests. Exactly. And the United States, in response to recent North Korean activities, has actually accelerated the deployment of THAAD. So I think it's clear that North Korea sees this system as a threat and wants to try and guard against any missile defenses neutralizing its nuclear deterrent. Uh, so the, these simultaneous tests are one of North Korea's activities that has sort of deviated from some of its more standard ballistic missile activity in, in the past year. Uh, there are another two missile tests that I think are quite significant. You know, first in 2016, there were a number of tests of North Korea's submarine-launched ballistic missiles. And this, you know, would give North Korea the ability, again, to evade THAAD in a different way. Uh, the THAAD missile defense radar has about a 120-degree scope. So it doesn't cover all of South Korea, or it doesn't cover all of North Korea. So a submarine, just by going out into the ocean off the coast of North Korea, could evade the radar and launch a submarine-launched ballistic missile uh, at South Korea. Now, does that submarine missile test and, and the development of submarine missile tests also give North Korea what's known in like nuclear deterrence as a second strike capability? Well... The thing about North Korean submarines is that they are very old diesel-fueled subs. So these vessels are likely easily trackable uh, in the ocean, given you know the advanced radars and systems that are likely employed you know by the United States and others. So it's not a true second strike capability uh, as you know, the United States has, because the United, you know, our submarines here in the U.S. are largely viewed as invulnerable um, because they cannot be tracked in that way. So it does extend North Korea's options uh, in terms of delivering nuclear warheads, but I, I don't think it's safe to say that North Korea has really achieved a second strike capability at this point. Um, so you've laid out the, I think in, in fairly good detail and, and better than I had heard, frankly, then uh, of why uh, North Korea is, is sort of engaging in these tests. But I guess the, the flip side of that question is what is to be done about it? Like what can the international community do about it? We heard um, just last week, Secretary of State Tillerson saying that the era of strategic patience is is over, that the Trump administration is going to pursue new policies. I guess first, can you describe what he was referring to when he said strategic patience, which I take it was the Obama administration's policy for the last several years? 
Exactly. The Obama administration pursued a policy that was based on increasing pressure on North Korea through sanctions, both at the U.S. level, but also at the international level through the United Nations, and signaling to North Korea that Washington would be willing to negotiate with Pyongyang after North Korea would take steps to indicate its commitment to denuclearization. Uh, North Korea committed to that as part of earlier multilateral talks with the United States and other countries uh, in the mid-2000s, uh, but has since you know, gone on to test uh, nuclear weapons and continue to build up its, its ballistic missile arsenal. So it's really moved away from, from that pledge. Uh, the strategic patience model did not work. Despite you know increased sanctions and increased pressure on North Korea, you know, Pyongyang has been able to build you know vast networks to circumvent sanctions to both you know sell prohibited items, but also purchase technologies that it needs for programs like its ballistic missile development. So the Trump administration came in and said they were going to do a thorough review of North Korea policy. And that review is, is underway right now. There are some hints about what that policy could include. U.S. Secretary of State Rex Tillerson, during his confirmation hearings, uh, talked about the need for more sanctions, uh, talked about the need to better enforce sanctions, you know, that's certainly one problem with the existing sanctions regime is that both U.S. sanctions and, more importantly, U.N. sanctions are not universally enforced. Mm -hmm. Even though I, I should say that these sanctions that, that have been passed mostly in, in 2016 uh, are, are just the most sweeping sanctions that have ever been passed against any country in the world. They're, they're really comprehensive. Uh, but as the problem is with most sanctions regimes, the challenge is actually in implementation and enforcement on paper. The sanctions are, are really good, but when it comes down to the nitty gritty, it's hard for countries to actually enforce them. Well, I'd say that there are two issues with sanctions enforcement. Sometimes there is a capacity question, and certainly smaller countries you know, may not always have the legal frameworks in place to enforce sanctions or the capacity to take some of the actions that are required, such as you know, inspecting cargo or stopping North Korean ships. But there also is a question of political will, and that's one of the areas where China really comes in. I think about 80% of North Korea's trade is conducted with China. So a lot moves over the North Korean-Chinese border and between ports in the two countries. Uh, and China has not done the best job enforcing sanctions. There are numerous instances of controlled items of Chinese origin you know, ending up in North Korea or technologies passing through China to North Korea. So that political will is something that the United States you know, can and should work with China on developing to try mm -hmm. and encourage them to better enforce these restrictions. And, and is it fair to say that from a Chinese perspective, while a nuclear-armed North Korea is problematic and, and a nuisance, uh, it is less problematic and less of a nuisance than either a unified Korea – uh, or a totally collapsed state on its border? And that's sort of been their ultimate strategic goal at this point? Well, I certainly think the collapse of North Korea would cause more of a problem for China than maintaining the status quo. 
But you know, regardless, it, it's important for Beijing to remember that if North Korea initiates a nuclear exchange, if there is even a, a nuclear accident or a miscalculation, there will still be ramifications for Beijing, both from a security perspective, from a political perspective, and from an environmental perspective as well. So it really is in China's best interest to work with the United States and South Korea and Japan and Russia to rein in North Korea's program and try and negotiate an agreement that rolls it back. And I think that China is willing to to be a part of, of that type of diplomatic process. And, and so to that end, China, over the last uh, week or so, proposed, uh, I suppose, what they're calling the freeze, which is an idea that, uh, or a proposal, that, that the United States and South Korea would stop their joint military exercises, and in exchange, North Korea would... Um, would would stop their you know nuclear testing and, and their ballistic missile testing and I, I take it you were probably at the the Carnegie uh, conference this week is that right I was yes. yeah yeah I, I figured it was like this big um, nonproliferation conference at the Carnegie Endowment for National Peace in, in Washington and I tuned into one of the panels on North Korea and I was surprised to learn that there was this like a modicum of support. Uh, among some of the panelists for that proposal, even though politically here in the United States, it's probably a non-starter because one, it doesn't call for the denuclearization of North Korea, and two, uh, the United States is not going to stop its its sort of uh, military exercises. But one panelist said, you know, this is probably like the least bad option right now. And I'm wondering sort of your take on this this Chinese proposal. Well, I'm very supportive of a freeze but in a slightly different formulation than what Beijing has proposed. I think it is critical to prevent North Korea from continuing to advance its programs, particularly on the ballistic missile front. If North Korea begins testing an intercontinental ballistic missile capable of reaching the continent of the United States, I think that's a game changer in terms of their capabilities. So freezing ballistic missile testing and freezing nuclear testing would prevent North Korea from advancing its capabilities. I don't think that completely freezing the U.S.-South Korea joint military exercises in return is going to fly here in Washington. But I think that Washington and Seoul could consider rolling back those exercises, you know, conducting them on a smaller and less provocative uh, and, and just in a less provocative way, and also commit you know, not to impose you know, more sanctions on North Korea so long as they continue to abide by the freeze. And if Washington does that in a way that messages that a freeze is to buy time for a more permanent negotiation on denuclearization. I think that politically that could pass muster here in Washington. Um, the, the sort of the flip side of, of that diplomatic approach is is a military strike, right? And and I'm wondering 
how effective would a, a strike like that be? Like, what are some of the risks involved? Well, there are a few different options for military strikes that I've heard discussed. One would be a preemptive strike against uh, North Korea as it tries to test an intercontinental ballistic missile. Uh, I think that that option should be off the table because if there's no perceived threat from that missile, this could be an illegal act. Uh, in terms of a broader military strike against North Korea, I think that that is an extremely dangerous proposition, in part because there is so little known about North Korea's nuclear deterrent, you know, where its warheads are stored, in what state they're stored, I think it would be difficult to ensure that all of North Korea's assets were taken out and that Pyongyang would not be in a position to retaliate. Because if North Korea were to take retaliatory action, South Korea would be the most likely target to, to pay the price for that action. And I don't think that that's something that, you know, the United, that's a course of action that the United States should take, uh, given the implications for South Korea and, you know, the number of U.S. citizens that are also in South Korea. I just don't see what a military strike on North Korea really achieves besides a likely escalation into a conflict that I think we can better avoid by trying first to negotiate. Okay, so if military strikes really is not an, an option, you're sort of saying all options are there on the table as a rhetorical device that diplomats often use. So what would your advice then be? You know, you said that the Trump administration is currently uh, reviewing North Korea policy. So if you're in the Situation Room, if you're advising the president, what, what would you uh, suggest? What would you advise as the wisest course of action right now? Well, just to be clear, I mean, I think that the military option should be off the table. I'm not sure it's off the table for the Trump administration. And in any comprehensive policy review, you know, reviewing military options, I think, is still responsible. I mean, any you know, incoming administration should be aware of the risks and rewards of, of multiple approaches. You know, that being said, I still would advise the Trump administration to try diplomacy first. You know, we have negotiated with North Korea in the past, and it has, you know, at times halted and even rolled back elements of their nuclear pro and missile programs. So I think countering the Chinese offer, which, you know, the North Koreans have also proposed at, at various times, this idea of a freeze, uh, with an offer to roll back military exercises with South Korea and refrain from further sanctions in return for no nuclear and missile testing you know, would be a good opening gamut. And to do that, I think the Trump administration should be willing to sit down and talk to the North Koreans without preconditions. Uh, if there are no preconditions, I think that the North Koreans you know, may be more likely to come to the table than under you know, the Obama administration, which 
wanted Pyongyang to take action to you know, commit to denuclearization before talks. And I think that was putting the cart a little bit before the horse. So, you know, talks without preconditions and then, you know, an offer of a freeze like I described is, is what I would advise the, the Trump administration to pursue. Um, and would, I suppose, like a resulting deal be something close to what was in place for, you know, the, the late Clinton administration, uh, which is essentially, you know, trading, you know, uh, aid for uh, a nuclear freeze and a halt on, on nuclear activity, which, you know, presumably North Korea is sort of cash strapped and, and desperate for cash because of these sanctions. So, you know, like, presumably they, they, you know, are, are in desperate need of, of cash and, and are, you know, being provocative now as a way to secure further concessions from the international community. Well, some critics of the freeze movement or of a freeze deal rightly point out a concern that you know, North Korea could pocket any concessions and then resume testing whenever it chooses. And that's why I'd be hesitant to include sanctions relief or cash incentives in any type of initial deal. In the benefits of offering a reduction in the size or scope of U.S.-South Korean military exercises and a commitment not to impose new sanctions is that the United States can rapidly change course if North Korea does conduct a test and you know, doesn't abide by the terms of a freeze. Exercises can be ramped up the following year. You know, sanctions can be quickly imposed. So I think that though that that gives Washington options if, if North Korea doesn't abide by its commitments. So I'd be hesitant to include a lot of cash inducements in, in any type of initial offer. But, you know, down the road, if North Korea was willing to take steps like cease production of fissile materials or allow inspectors back into its, its nuclear facilities, I think, you know, then, you know, some sanctions relief, uh, that could be something that the U.S. puts on the table. Because those would be just more meaningful steps, like reentering exactly. the NPT or something like that, the Nonproliferation Treaty. I mean, that would certainly be ideal. Uh, that would, of course, require North Korea to give up the nuclear weapons that it has and ensure that they are you know, verifiably disarmed uh, and dismantled. Uh, so, you it know, doesn't another... look like that's happening anytime soon, unfortunately. <laughs> no, I don't think we can look forward to that in, in the short term. But it is something that the United States could plan for in the long term. When looking at options to involve China and work with China on the North Korean question, I think one area of possible cooperation could be joint U.S.-Chinese you know, technical work on how to verifiably dismantle North Korea's nuclear program. You know, if we ever get to the point where North Korea is ready to give up its nuclear weapons, I think there's going to be a lot of attention and interest in ensuring that it is done uh, properly and that all of the countries in the region 
uh, are assured that nothing slipped through the cracks. Uh, although it does seem at the moment that the U.S. and, and China are uh, on very opposite sort of paths regarding North Korea, particularly with the deployment of, of THAAD, which has the, that missile defense system you referenced earlier, which has really irked China. They don't want a U.S. missile defense system so close to, to their own sphere of influence. Yes, China and Russia both have opposed that for political and technical reasons. So, you know, that's another, you know, freezing progress on that could be another offer that the United States could throw into a deal in return for a, a moratorium on testing in, in North Korea. I think that's less likely given that you know, South Korea really wants bad to be deployed. Uh, but it, it is something to consider. And that would have the added benefit of keeping China and Russia on board, because China in particular, is going to play a role in the future of, of North Korea, just given its relationship, you know, whether the, the US, you know, wants to, to irk Beijing with the bad deployment or not. So looking for options to continue to work with China, um, both on you know, how to negotiate and talk with North Korea and how to sort of encourage Beijing to better enforce sanctions, I think is certainly something that the United States can be doing now, uh, irrespective of the North Koreans and something that the Trump administration really should pursue. Uh, well, Kelsey, thank you so much. This was so, so helpful. I, I really appreciate it. Well, thank you so much for having me. All right. Thank you all for listening. I told you that would be helpful. No, it was a great conversation. I uh, had not interviewed Kelsey before, but I, after having this conversation, suspect that she'll be a regular on this show. This was really helpful. Thank you, Kelsey. Thank you all for listening. And a big, big thank you to my premium subscribers. And if you're considering becoming a premium subscriber, please do so. Please support the show. We need your help. This thing can only grow and survive if you become a part of our community. Thank you, and we'll see you next time. Bye.